I want to take you on a little history tour before we get to the text this morning. It was June of 1967. How many of you were alive in 1967? That was a bunch of you. Amen. I was not. Thank you very much. 1967, the modern state of Israel found itself facing insurmountable odds and, and an impossible situation. You've never heard of the Six-Day War, I would encourage you to go to YouTube or other place and, and, and watch some of the documentaries on it. It is absolutely fascinating. Still an infant nation with the memory of the Holocaust fresh in their minds, Israel was poised for war against four of the most powerful Arab armies in the world all at the same time. And according to military analysts and and pundits, it was an unwinnable match for, for Israel. And, and if you would have been one of those pundits and you just looked at the facts of the situation, you would have probably agreed. Israel was surrounded with four fronts to defend in a landmass the size of New Jersey. The Israeli defense force was outnumbered two to one, and most of the, of the one that was part of, of, of Israel's side of the equation these were these were common folk. These weren't battle-hardened soldiers. They were outnumbered two to one compared or combi- um, compared to the combined military of, of Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt. The United Arab Forces had more than double the amount of tanks as the Israelis, close to four times the amount of aircraft. The Soviet Union had poured two billion worth of arms into $2 billion worth of arms into the Arab nations. If you would have been in Egypt or Syria or Jordan during that time, you would have heard the Muslim cry, Itba al-Yahud, an Arabic phrase meaning slaughter the Jews. It was spewing from almost every Arab regime's radio, television, and mosques. World Islamic leaders saw it as a repeat of the Prophet Muhammad's triumph of, 16, of 627, I should say, A.D. over the Jews, and they were saying they were going to drive the Jews into the sea. And with two and a half million Jews living in one place, again, the size of New Jersey, this was the highest concentration of Jews since pre-Holocaust Eastern Europe, all in one place. And so the Arabs saw it as... as um, Allah providing all the Jews in one place and they had them surrounded and they would kill them all at once. They would, they would finish off what Hitler failed to do. The Egyptian president, Gamal Abdul Nasser, looking at the situation, stated, I'm quoting, this was before the war, obviously, I announce on behalf of the United Arab Republic that we will exterminate Israel, end quote. The three-week period preceding the Six-Day War was one of dread. It was one of shock. It was, it was filled with fright for the residents of, of, of Israel. The outlook was so pessimistic that the nation's rabbis declared the national landmarks, the national parks, they went in and sanctified them to become Jewish burial grounds because they did not believe that the current cemeteries that they had in Israel would actually hold the bodies of the Israelis that would die in the six day well in the war that was that was coming. Um, 
However, <laughs> what everyone anticipated is not what God planned. And rather than fall to defeat, four of the strongest Arab nations were systematically obliterated in six days. By the time the war had ended, the casualties on the Israeli side were minimal. The territory under Israel's control had tripled in size. They captured the control of Jerusalem for the first time in 2,000 years. Do you remember the last time they had control of Jerusalem? It's when a prophecy was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the Romans ran them out for rejecting the Messiah. And the Jews returned to sites of their ancestors that they hadn't been in in thousands of years. One commentator said they fought for six days and on the seventh day they rested. And they did. History books speak of 100 years wars, 30 years wars, but not six-day wars. And yet that's exactly what the history books declare. It was seen as such an improbable victory that even secular reporters were attributing what took place as a miracle. And in situations where odds are insurmountable and victory seems impossible, that's exactly the way that God likes it, isn't it? And in those situations, God leads His people to know Him and He teaches them to trust in His, in His Word. And while it's easy for, for the world to look at Israel and the Six-Day War or 1967 and, and lose confidence, or it's, it's easy for even the Israelis to, to lose confidence because of what they see or what others say, God gives us assurance that we can trust Him because of who He is and because of what He has promised. Have you ever, can you ever find, have you ever known any place in the Bible that you've ever read where victory for God was dependent upon anything other than Himself? <laughs> you know, can you ever, there's story after story after story in the Old Testament just like the Six-Day War. Where the, where the odds were insurmountable. And it was impossible for victory to be attained. And, and, I mean, God's walking, having the children of Israel walk around the walls of Jericho and shout, you know? Sticking torches in pots and breaking them and watching everybody else kill each other. I mean, God is not dependent upon four Arab armies, two Arab armies, the, the, the numbers of, of how many soldiers one side as or not. But God's people are dependent upon Him. And in those situations, He leads them there so that they'll learn to trust Him and trust His words over the voices that are around. It really, we left Israel in a similar situation in chapter 5 of Exodus, didn't we? The people have heard the words of Moses and Aaron, and they, they responded to the announcement that God was going to deliver them. He's heard their prayers. They respond with, with belief and worship. And then things get worse, not better. I mean, can you imagine if you're an Israeli? I mean, the Holocaust has taken place. You win your independence. You have this land. You want to leave everybody alone and everybody leave you alone. And now you have all of these nations that want to drive you into the, into the sea just because you're a Jew. And here is the people of God. They've been under slavery, brutal, brutal slavery. 
and, and they've been praying and crying out to the Lord. They didn't rebel. They, they just they continued to do what they were supposed to do and prayed to God, and God sends His messengers. I'm go- I heard you. I'm going to deliver you. And it's more bricks, less straw, and things get worse. And when you begin to think of it that way, you, you, it's easier to put yourself in the shoes of the, of the children of Israel. The people of God responded to Moses and Aaron, and when things got worse, the affliction challenged them to determine who they're going to serve. Will they serve the Lord, or will they serve Pharaoh? Who will they listen to? Will they listen to the voice of the Lord? Thus saith the Lord, I will deliver you, or thus saith Pharaoh. Will they listen to Pharaoh's words or God's words? And today, you're going to see, we're going to see how God responds to Israel's doubt and the way in which He gives His people assurance. Assurance is a comforting word, isn't it? I mean, even just saying it, assurance, it's a comforting word. It's a it's that confidence that we look for when we're uncertain about our circumstances or the outcome or a situation. We pray for assurance. We, we, we crave assurance. Lacking assurance leads to anxiety. It leads to fearfulness. It steals our joy. And yet God is all about assurance. But God doesn't point us for assurance to what we see or what others say. God points us to, to find assurance in who He is in what He says, what He promises, what He declares. And while the journey that God leads us on may take us longer than we anticipate or involve more difficulty than we would care to have, it always leads to the place that God promises. With God, you never have to be unsure. And that gives me great assurance. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6 this morning. We started it last week in just seeing how, how, um, how God responded to Moses whenever he, whenever he accused him. And we're only going to cover the first 13 verses. We'll, I'll make comment on the genealogy Next week, Lord willing. But from, from Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, God provides three assurances in a, in a time of trouble. There are three assurances. God assures through His identity. He declares to Israel, I am the Lord. It's the first thing He says. Then, he gives Israel assurance. God's assurance is in his promise. He says, I will. Seven times he says, I will. And then, God's assurance comes from his message. He tells Moses to go tell. Go tell my people and go tell Pharaoh. That's what we're going to see this morning. Let's look at the first one. God's assurance comes through His identity. Look, if you would, at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses... Now remember what Moses just got done saying to the Lord. He's accusing God of blowing it. Actually, 
bringing more difficulty on the people. He says, why did you even send me? Moses is acting like he is more compassionate than God is, the guy that God had to convince to go to begin with. And here's how the Lord responds. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go. With a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. Now when you think of that, that's an odd way to respond to a situation, isn't it? I mean, things weren't going well. The foreman had turned to, turned to Pharaoh for deliverance. I mean, Moses is going in, he tells them, and, I mean, everything's coming apart. The, the, the foremen that are supposed to, you know, go to the Lord or back to Moses, they turn to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, rescue us. The people are blaming Moses for their hardship. They've rejected his leadership. The foremen, who are like the, the leaders there of Israel, have even asked for Moses' resignation. Moses himself is blaming God and has accused him of unfaithfulness and of doing evil to his people. And the Lord says to Moses, in the midst of that, God answers, now is the time. <laughs> Pharaoh's at his height of pride and Israel's at their depth of misery. And God says, now is the time. It's like he says, it's like he's saying, it had to get this bad before it was time. And now it's bad and now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. And then he shows Moses where to look for, for assurance because nothing has changed. The circumstances haven't changed. He just says, now you'll see. In verse 2, look at verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. He gives assurance that now is the time and this is what he had promised. Exactly what's going to take place because he is the Lord. He gives assurance through his identity. He says, I am. He makes this statement three times. I am the Lord. He says to Moses in verse 2, I am the Lord. Look at verse 6. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And after the I will statements, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, he ends it with another book in at the end of verse 8. I will give it to them, to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel three times. I mean, and even inherent in the I will, and there's a couple other times in there that he, that he intimates that he is the Lord. But direct statements, I am Yahweh. To Moses' accusation, God says, let me tell you who I am. I am the very same one who spoke to the patriarchs. Look at verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. I am more glorious than you have ever known. I care more about you than you could ever understand. It might seem odd that at the time of need, God comes with a message about Himself, but it's really not odd at all. Israel needed to be reminded who they were following, and so God reminds them who He is. Do you know that the Lord Jesus did the very same thing in the Gospel of John? in the face of doubt and, and difficulty. With the hirelings misleading, he said, I am the good shepherd, didn't he? When there were two ways to go, he says, I am the, the gate. When they 
when they doubted the way, He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. He doesn't say, now guys, let me tell you. Let me tell you the path to get there. Let me... Let me explain it to you. Let me fix the situation. He just says, I am. I am the Lord. I, I am the door. I'm the bread of heaven. I am the living water. I am God. That's what he's saying. He, nothing's different here, but that's where they needed to start and where we need to start. You facing insurmountable odds? You feel like it's an impossible victory? Have you come to the place where you feel like you can't win the, the battle of sin? Then you need to start with God. You, you need to hear God say, I am the Lord. And you've got to get to the place in your life where you, as I've said about my own testimony, I had no place else to look but up. Because until I got to the point where I had no place else to look but up, I looked every other place. And you're prideful, sinful heart will look in every other place before you look to the Lord. And so God leads Israel to the place where they can look no place other than the Lord. And then He says, I am. But God reveals more about His identity. Look at verse 3. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I was not known to them. Now, we talked a little bit before about what that, what that means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that, that the patriarchs didn't know the name Yahweh or capital L-O-R-D or Jehovah as it's, it's translated. Because it's used several times in Genesis. Early on, the men, and, and men began to call upon the name of the Lord, L-O-R-D. He wasn't saying that they that they'd not heard the sound of his name. You know how Jews won't even pronounce the name Yahweh, or if you see Orthodox writings, it'll be G and then it'll have a dash and D. They won't even write the name of, of God. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is that they knew me as God Almighty, but they didn't understand the full significance of my identity. They didn't understand the full significance of who I am, the way that you're going to understand it, Moses, and the way the children of Israel are going to understand it. They had not experienced the significance of who God was. They had not experienced God as Yahweh, but Israel would. Did you know that there's more of God to experience than what you already know? Did, did you know that there's so much more that it will take a never-ending period of time called eternity to experience who God is? One of the reasons eternity is heaven is never-ending in that direction is because it will take a never-ending period of time for you and I to experience who God is. He's limitless. And God never changes, but we experience the specific character of God when we go through different challenges and different phases in life. If you're here and you've never had a child, you'll watch other people whenever a baby comes into the world and you'll watch them just turn into complete imbeciles. They'll start to talk gibberish. They'll, they'll do all kinds of crazy things. And you won't know 
what that's like until you experience it. Someone can tell you about it. When you have one child, someone will say, I just don't know how I could love anything more than I love this little baby. And then number two comes along and you realize that God doesn't take love from one. He gives you the capacity to love two. He gives you more love. Those of you who have never been grandparents, like I've never been a grandparent, you will experience the love of God and the attributes of God and the goodness of God in a completely new way and in a way that no one could ever explain to you until you get there. You see, God never changes. God was the same God to the patriarchs as He, as he, as he is right now with Moses but we experience the specific character of God when we go through different challenges and different phases in life. God has promised to deliver you faultless before the throne. He's promised to continue the good work that He began in you, and He will present you to heaven. You are as good as there as if you were already there, but you haven't died yet. He's promised to deliver you faultless before the throne, but you will not experience Him in that way until you come to the end of, of life and He grips your hand and leads you across death's tide. God has promised to stick closer to you than a brother, but you will not experience Him in that way until you're betrayed by someone dearer than a brother. The patriarchs knew the Lord, but they had not experienced God in His identity in the same way that Moses and Israel we're going to experience Him. You see, all of life is really about God. It's about experiencing Him. And I don't mean this existential feeling, fuzzy type of thing. I mean knowing God, who God is. The Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And your life is part of that glory and part of that enjoyment. It doesn't start whenever you get in heaven. It starts now. And as the different triumphs and trials come and, and you, get to, you get to say He is enough and you get to experience a new aspect of, of God. You get to see the diamond from a different angle. You get to see God's beauty and His goodness and His faithfulness and His character, whatever attribute it, it, it might be. And here the covenant-keeping God will be known by Moses and Israel. God will make Himself known to Israel by delivering them from Egypt. Don't forget, He also made Himself known to Jacob by leading them to Egypt. He is now creating an opportunity to make Himself known through Pharaoh's hard heart and Israel's delay. Ligon Duncan said the Lord was saying to Moses, in verse 2, buckle your seatbelt, Moses, I'm about to blow your mind. You have no idea how glorious I am, how powerful I am, how faithful I am. You have no idea what is in store. That's why God says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. You will see what I will do to Pharaoh and you will experience me as, as Yahweh, as the, as the covenant-keeping God. And the starting point in trouble is God. I am and future hope lies in I will. Let me give you the second assurance. God's assurance comes in His promise, I will. I am, I will. Two simple statements. I am the Lord, and I will. Not I might. 
Not I will if these certain things happen. Not I will if Pharaoh cooperates. If you cooperate, I will. I'm God. I will. I will it. It will happen. I am God. Period. That's what he's saying. Seven actions he's going to take. And they're significant. They're in the first person. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. All in verse 6. I will take you to be my people in verse 7. I will be your God in verse 7. I will bring you into the land in verse 8. I will give it to you for a possession before it ever happens. God is declaring, I will. And there's no mistake that all of those categories fall within the three categories of the Abrahamic covenant. He says, I will bring you out. Look at verse 6. Never say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. What does this covenant God do? What will they experience? They'll experience this promise. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I, the Lord, myself, not Pharaoh, not Moses, and certainly not the people who are despondent and downcast, faithless, but the Lord himself, I will bring you out. I will rescue you. I will deliver you. I will bring you out from under the the burdens of the Egyptian. I will rescue you from their, their bondage. The Hebrew word is, I will free you. I will save you. I will rescue you. God is presenting Himself as the Savior of His people here. In the verse 6, I will redeem you. It's the, it's the word that we get, kinsman redeemer. God will redeem Israel out of the hand of His own enemy. I will take you to be My people. It's the first concept here that we get of Emmanuel. We're going to celebrate that at Christmas. God with us. I will take you to be my people. I will be with you. You will be with me. The very heart of the covenant. Verse 7. I will be your God. He announces all that and says He will be their God and they will know that He is the Lord who brought them out. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land which I swore. Now think about this. It's shocking enough to hear God swearing to His people, to His friends, but, but the way this is written is... Is, is to highlight something. It literally says, I will bring you to the land that I lifted my hand and took a pledge to give to Abraham. I mean, this, the picture is God Almighty standing with, with upstretched or outstretched hand saying, I swear by me, I will give you the land. And that's how far He's willing to go to assure His, his people. In the end of verse 8, I will give it to you as a heritage, as a possession. And you can argue over secular Israel and, and that some of those people didn't believe in the Lord or, or, or otherwise, but God has not forsaken His people and this declares the land is theirs as a heritage. And they don't have it all because of their disobedience. They've rejected their Messiah. They're not going to heaven apart from Christ, but the land is part of the promised covenant that He gave to to Abraham and faith rests in the in the promises of of God. This is a foundation series. So we're looking at how God is laying foundations for us now for for what we'll see in the in the New Testament.
we saw how Genesis laid the original foundations, and, and now we're building on the foundations from Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant, and, and how God revealed Himself in the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, that's what He's saying here. I appeared to them as God Almighty, and now you're going to experience more of Me as, as I'm advancing My promise and, and My plan. And we know further into the New Testament, we're on this side of the cross. What a blessed privilege we have. And we see that foundation laid and then, and then built upon in the, in the church. Exodus, on a, on a larger scale, is what Mount Moriah and the sacrifice of Isaac was in miniature. God taught us in, in Genesis 21 that when, when the ram was provided... What did Moses or what did Abraham declare about God? What did he name God? He was he was who? He was Jehovah Jireh. He was the provider. The Lord provides. That's what he declared, right? And what's going to what's going to happen at the end of the plagues? There's going to be a ram provided in 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 Genesis for 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 Isaac in place of Isaac and and he's going to provide something else in at the at the end of the plagues there's going to be a passover lamb provided for Israel right not just for not just for the promised son but now it's for the promised people and then you go all the way over to the over to the to the new testament as god provided the ram to abraham the passover lamb for the people of israel god has provided the lamb of god for the world Jesus Christ is the exodus on an even larger scale. And you can just see how this foundation is, is being laid. And that's good news. Is that good news? It's good news. It's good news. If you see yourself the way the people saw themselves and the way Moses saw himself, they had no place to turn you still think that you have righteousness or you have somewhere to turn in your own strength, your own bootstraps, or someone else, then you will not see how wonderful of a news that is. And it's good news that God wants, wants people to know it. This third assurance comes from His message. He tells Moses, I am. He says, tell the people of Israel, the children of Israel, I am and I will. And then he tells Moses, go tell the people of Israel and go tell Pharaoh my message. Look at verse 6. I am, I will. Go say or go tell the children of Israel. Look at verse 11. Go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt... Go announce to my people, I am and I will. That's what he says. Go announce to my enemies the same message. I am and I will. Whether it's my people or my enemies, the message is no different. And nothing's different today, is it? We're to announce God's people and God's enemies that He is the Lord and that He will save if you'll look to Him. Look at verse 9. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. Moses told the children of Israel, I am and I will, declares God. But they did not heed 
Moses because of the anguish of spirit and the cruel bondage. Moses tells the people and it says they don't listen. That's a sad scene. I mean, if you were writing the story, it would be at the bottom of the pit, God comes in and declares, I am and I will. And the people rise up and say, we will follow, we will follow. And they, out they would go. But God still has part of the story to, to write. He still has some things to make known about Himself and He still has some things to, to do. Moses delivers the gospel. The people don't listen. Their circumstances, their burdens crowded out the very words of comfort. You know what this is? Verse 9 of Exodus 6 is the parable of the soil in the Old Testament. Look at what it says. They did not heed Moses because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage, the cares of the world and of life. The people didn't listen to Moses. Moses spoke faithfully. But their difficulty drowned out the words, the very words of comfort that God had given them. Moses spoke faithfully the message that God intended for His people, but the people's difficulty drowned it out the very drowned out the very word of comfort that God had given to deliver them. Did you know God speaks every day? From His Word, anytime you open His Word, He speaks. He's speaking this morning. And it breaks It breaks my heart to think of the times that God has spoken to me in the midst of my, my discouragement or, I, or my doubt, but my discouragement and doubt has actually drowned out the very words of comfort that God had for me. And it breaks my heart that right now God is is telling you about Himself this morning, declaring hope is in His promise and some will not listen. People ask me, what's the, what's the hardest part about being a pastor? Depending on the day, I'd probably give you a different answer. But a consistent burden, difficulty, is watching people in need, whether it's they need Jesus or they need help, their promises, and you take them to the Word and they see what God says, and then they, they willingly walk away from the words of life. And there, when it happens time after time after time, it, you do have to pray that God will keep your heart tender because it, it, it can get calloused. If you witness a lot, you'll find yourself, well, yeah, I'm going to leave the track or I'm going to witness. They're probably not going to, probably not going to you know, get saved anyway. But when you really think about it, it's, it, it's heart-wrenching. It's heartbreaking. And the people have been under burdens and they have given up hope and they have forgotten the promise that God has made. And, and while they've forgotten God's promises, listen to me, He remembers it. Always remember that. No matter how full of doubt you are, God never doubts anything. He can't. He would be doubting himself and that's impossible. You may have forgotten or even forsaken the Lord, but he, will, he remembers and He will fulfill exactly what He has spoken because He has said, I am the Lord and I will. And 
My challenge to you today is if you are like the people of Israel, broken in spirit under the harsh slavery of sin, look up. Look to Christ. He has a message for you. He wants to deliver you. And His Gospel is proclaimed and it's falling upon your ears. Don't walk away from the very words of comfort. Don't allow sin and the cares to choke out the compassion of God that He's laying out before you in the cross. Hear Him say, I am. I am the Lord. You're not facing anything that I can't handle. And I will. You can't. God's message hasn't changed. Would you bow your heads? It's a time in the service when You've heard, and now you get to respond. Would you bow your heads and just consider what God has said today? The Lord loves you no matter how doubtful, depressed, or defeated you are, and He has a message to assure you, but that assurance is in who He is and in what He's declared. You won't climb up any other way. Jesus said, I am the door. If you have a hope of heaven, it will only come through Him. And there's no shortcuts. You must obey God. What He has declared, His message hasn't changed. Are you facing insurmountable odds? You feel like you've got four Arab armies beating down on every side. Satan crowing, I will push you into the sea. I am God. And I will do all that I've promised. Do you know Him? Are you telling others? I think inherent within this message is is God telling Moses, Moses telling the people, and then also telling Pharaoh. His enemies and his people get the same message. And that message is delivered through people. Go tell them this good news, who God is, and what He has declared, what He will do. And then let Him work. He will. Father, as we bow in Your presence and give You thanks for Your truth, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the reminder this morning of I am, I will, and the command to us to go tell. Help us to be faithful to do that. Pray for every person here who's struggling, Lord. While they may have even forgotten things, You have not forgotten anything, and You surely have not forgotten Your promise to Your Son that You'll not allow a single one to be lost. We love You. We thank You for loving us. And we give You praise in Jesus' name.